to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we're joined by Melissa Staines, a marine biologist and lead project researcher at the Turtle Cooling Project, which is sponsored by WWF. So Melissa, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to the Conservation Tribe. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Bo. No worries. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. So today's episode, we're going to be focusing around sea turtles, which I'm super stoked to, to be talking for about 45 minutes purely on sea turtles. So that's kind of great. But before we do that, can you please give a little intro to who you are and what you do? Cool. Yeah, so my name is Melissa. Um, I've recently just finished my honours, um, which in Australia is basically a one year of research. Um, compared to like a master's, which is basically has coursework or research. Um, so yeah, I just finished my honors and um, basically I did a whole year work with um, turtle research. And prior to that, I did my undergraduate degree um, at the University of Queensland as well. Um, and I did a bachelor in marine biology. And during that time, I did an undergraduate project where I was able to publish a manuscript um, and then that basically um, gave me uh, basically a hit of research um, and I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Like I'm pretty set on being a researcher and staying in academia. Um, I really enjoy it. And so honours just seemed to make a lot of sense and then mm -hmm. kind of paving the way for a PhD. Mm -hmm. So what was that bit? So there was kind of a spark. There was a moment where you're like, oh, this is what I want to do. Yeah. So yeah. What was um, that? <laughs> so basically I think it was just the idea of like, well, I always had it when I was in undergraduate um, wanting to know more and going like, there's always like the extra reading and stuff like that, that you have in coursework. And I found myself continuously going on and doing the extra reading, even though everybody finds it really boring, but the extra reading is always like papers and yeah, I wouldn't read all the papers, but definitely the ones that were um, that really sparked my interest. And then going to my first conference last year, um, I did a talk about my undergraduate project and just being surrounded by all these other like-minded people that just want to know more and more about sea turtles because there's so many unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was definitely something that made me want to stay um, in academia. And mm -hmm. I love the idea of being surrounded by fellow scientists rather than working for, I don't know, other people that might have different outlooks or mm -hmm. different, uh, yeah, responsibilities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And have you always had a soft spot for turtles? Um, I didn't. When I was growing up, I, um, I knew I wanted to do nature stuff. I really idolised David Attenborough. Like I thought I was going to be the next David Attenborough. <laughs> which what a I'm legend. Sure, like, <laughs> Um, so I always knew that and I always thought I was going to go into like nature photography, but I just never bought a camera. So that never really sparked anything. And then when I was 16, I went and got my dive certificate mm -hmm. and 
horrific instances happened where I ended up blowing my sinus, like basically it burst in because <laughs> um, I found out I have a deviated septum. So <laughs> that Ouch. was a fun experience. Yeah. <laughs> my mask filling up with blood and, and my friend, um, she didn't like blood and we were swimming with brain nurse sharks as well. So she spewed through a regulator and it was a horrific time. Um, Jesus. But <laughs> all that, I was kind of like, Oh no, I can't really do research if I can't dive because at the time, like I didn't want to tell my mom that, um, you know, that I had such a horrific experience and that I had to go get an operation to get my sinuses fixed and everything. So I literally put up with it and just decided, Oh, I'm still going to be a marine biologist. Um, and then when I was in my second year, I did, uh, basically just volunteer researching at Monroe Conservation Center near Bundaberg. And, um, I just did a week there, just a one-off thing, um, and got to experience turtles like for the first time really up close and they have loggerhead turtles nesting there. And so that was my first like volunteer research kind of experience. And, um, from that, I realized I really like turtles. <laughs> um, and then I got in line with um, my current supervisor who had the undergraduate project um, and that was offered to me in third year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So before you mention, there's uh, quite a few unanswered questions related to sea turtles. Yeah. Can you, what are some of those questions? So one of the big ones um specifically for um, understanding how sea turtles might respond to climate change is that we don't even know how long they live for. And for a lot of the species, it's quite variable when they first start breeding. So they think for green turtles, it's closer to around 30 years old, which is pretty old. Um, Some even maybe 40 years old, which is even older. (laughs) So you think about the time when there are a tiny little hatchling Um, If it's a female hatchling, she won't return to that nesting region for another 30 to 40 years. And you can imagine how much that beach has changed in that amount of time. Um, So that's one question. Another question is basically when um, sea turtles are developing as little embryos, there's um, a middle section of their development where their sex is determined. Now, the middle section is like basically what they call it the mid trimester in development. And that's literally the most finite amount that we know about their development. Like we can't narrow it down to like an exact day or anything like that when the temperature of the nest would actually determine what sex that hatchling is going to be because they have temperature dependent sex determination. Right. So if we were able to know the exact day of development when their sex is determined that would save so much time and effort in conservation beaches because rather than shading or irrigating an entire beach for the entire incubation period you know that you only have to water that nest for one day and be able to cool it down or shade that nest for one day Mm -hmm. and that's all you have to worry about after that and then you'll know you've produced enough males Mm -hmm. Um, so what is that range that that trimester uh, that whatever you referred to it as what how long is that period of time so um because sea turtles uh basically their development period so their entire time that they're in the egg that's completely influenced by the temperature of the nest so if you put a temper a nest in the sun it's going to be really short 
So only like 40 days. And that means that the development period in the middle trimester is going to be even shorter. And that could be as little as two or three days. Whereas if you've got a nest that's being put in the shade or it's laid in winter, um, that nest could be incubating for three months and the development period in the middle could be for three weeks. So that's kind of the difference between um, if we knew exactly the day and the period when sex is being determined, that would help so much with being able to cool the nest down properly and produce more males. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with the temperature playing a part in determining the sex of the turtle, is it a higher temperature means a male baby sea turtle? No, no, no. High temperatures mean female. female. Sorry, female. So um, the way that I remember it is cool chicks. No, cool dudes, hot chicks. That's the way that you can remember it. <laughs> I just know that. Yeah, it's cool dudes, hot chicks. And so like the warmer temperatures and generally – you've got like um, uh, a temperature, sorry, not generally, there is a temperature. Um, it's called the pivotal temperature where anything beyond that point, you'll get all females and anything below that point, you'll get all males. And for most sea turtle species around the world, it's around 29 degrees. But for different populations, it can vary by 0.2 of a degree. And that's enough to um, influence whether that entire clutch is going to be male or female. And to put that into perspective, the um, research that I was just doing, we had like shaded nests and unshaded nests and some of the shaded ones were only cooler by the sun ones by only like one degree, but they were producing like 75% males, whereas the suns were producing 100% females and they only varied by one degree, which is not much. <laughs> and that's why when you talk about like the grand scheme of climate change, for instance, you know, they're talking about these huge changes of like two degrees or four degrees by like 2100. And then you go back to the long generation times of sea turtles where they can't reproduce for every 30 years. That means that within three generations, the temperature of the nest could be four degrees higher. And there's no way that a sea turtle is being able to, adapt fast enough um, as an embryo to cope with that significant thermal change. Mm -hmm. So these microclimatic effects that you're researching, this is um, was towards that research paper that you've published this year? Um, yeah. So the microclimatic effects paper, that's basically was looking more specifically at um, the effects of vegetation around nests. So vegetation is obviously really important for providing shade because we have like tall overgrowing trees, which is classed as vegetation. And, but then you've also got short growing vegetation like grasses and bush um, that could be growing around the nests. And so basically like up until the paper that I published, um, we always thought that as long as we were relocating nests into shaded areas that they would survive better because, um, also warmer nests produce poorer quality hatchlings so they're more lethargic um with anything that overheats you're going to have um, mortality as well so if the eggs get too warm they'll die in the sun so as a conservation standard it was just pretty general for um projects like at monopo or other places around the world to just relocate all the nests into shaded areas underneath trees but from my paper, we found that if those shaded areas also have 
grass growing underneath them that the eggs would actually have higher mortality than they would out in the sun. And that's because the grass roots would actually penetrate all the way down to where the eggs were and suck the water dry out of the embryos, which is pretty (laughs) – it wasn't nice when I was doing it, I must admit. Like you find um, whole clutches that were literally two or three days away from hatching Mm. and they were all shriveled up little baby hatchlings that had been completely sucked dry of water because the roots had found them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the roots basically cover the egg entirely. So, um, what would come out of that is what we've made suggestions to other conservation projects is that if you're going to relocate nests underneath shaded trees, that um, the vegetation has to be removed as well. But then you go back to like June ecology and all these other things, um, especially if you're trying to prevent erosion, you need June vegetation as well. So, it's, it's a fine balance. Yeah, it's a really fine balance between like trying to identify um, maybe there's a particular grass species that has really deep growing roots and maybe you can just try to selectively remove that grass um, compared to other grasses that at least hold the top sand soil together. Um, But it's very beach specific. So at Mondrapo, there's definitely like invasive species on that beach. So it would be ideal for, um, you know, the park's, uh, people to come in and be able to remove those grasses that are causing problems for turtle nests. Mm-hmm. When you're going to the beach and potentially suggesting like removing some of the grass, is that along the whole beach or is that like on a small pocket of the beach and the turtles yeah. would lay their eggs and then you collect the eggs and then relay them in the small pocket so, of how does that work? Yeah, so basically a relocation process, it first happens, so the turtle's laid her eggs and you put some markers behind her while she's laying and then once she's moved off the nest, you can dig the eggs back up Um, and it takes not very long. It only takes about 10 minutes to relocate them. But the really important thing is that you relocate them within two hours of being laid because past that point, um, basically oxygen will diffuse through the eggshell and wake the embryos up because they've been in a dipause. Um, so if you're able to do it within that two hour window, that's great. It means all of the eggs are going to be healthy and survive. Now with the selective revegetation, sorry, devegetation, um, you basically would just want to remove the vegetation where you want to put the eggs. And in most conservation projects around the world, they don't relocate every single nest. It's kind of like a proportion so that they're still producing some females and some males. And at least at places like Monropo, they're doing it primarily to help produce males because um, that's a dark sanded beach, which means that if it's darker sand, the sand's likely to be warmer and produce more females compared to like coral islands out in the Great Barrier Reef, which have white sand and are more likely to produce males. Mm-hmm. So if you knew exactly what day, that, that kind of that critical day that determined the sex, how would that then influence kind of these processes at the moment yeah so if we knew the exact exact day um like i said it would be it would really help with conservation projects um we wouldn't have to worry about watering nests for a month because that's what i had to do in my research project um in my honors research i we had to water 12 nests for 35 days every single day with eight Mm. nine liters or eight liters of water um which by hand is going very tedious after you get a bit over it after like the 20th day. So, um, and you got to think like these conservation projects, they're 
barely running on any money at all, most of them. Mm. And they're mostly um, funded by tourism if they're able to have tourists um, join them on the beach for night patrols and sea hatchlings and all that mm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, unless your place is in Australia, which are very well government funded, which is really good. Um, but it basically means that you're able to like um, significantly reduce the amount of um, labour intensiveness of the projects and if it means that you only have to cool a nest for two or three days rather than 30 days, it's quite easy to manage and be able to produce males. Um, the other thing that would be really important is that basically we use um, that thermal sensitive period, which is when the sex is being determined, um, to create models. And um, models are great because it means you can basically just have the same temperature from a, um, a beach where turtles are nesting and estimate what that beach might be producing, whether it's majority female or majority male. And so if you have, say, a week of the nesting season where it's really, really rainy, you can predict by knowing how many nests have been laid um, at that time um, and during that rainy period exactly how many males would have been produced because basically if it rained for a whole week, pretty much all of the nests that had their thermal sensitive period in that week produced males. Mm. Okay, yeah, so, so these models are used as a tool to kind of figure out what that day is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and that's how long do you reckon that would take? Like, how many of these? Like, are we maybe a year away? Like, is it something that's got to be quite difficult to try and figure out? Oh, so the research um, in is it's quite. Um, it's controversial because basically if you want to figure out the exact day when um, a sea turtle hatchling becomes male or female, it means that you have to kill all of the embryos at the end of the day, which is quite sad. Um, Why is that? So sea turtle hatchlings, when they're born, they don't have any external features that are male or female, so you don't know whether they're male or female. Mm-hmm. The only thing that you can tell them by is basically internal gonads. So... Um, unless you grow them out for like three months and the cloaca is large enough that you can fit a small camera into the cloaca or near the cloaca and see testes or ovaries, then you'll be able to know if it's a male or female. But um, turtle husbandry is obviously expensive as well and not all like university um, facilities like have that. Mm -hmm. So um, generally what they do is um, in the 80s when they first found out that that was when that period was, for sea turtles in the middle third of development, um, you basically have uh, two incubators. One is set at 27 degrees, which is a male producing temperature, so it's nice and cool. And then the other one is at like 30 degrees, and so that's a female producing temperature. And um, you have all of the eggs set up in the two different incubators, and at different days of the incubation, you swap the eggs that are in each incubator. And basically, if um, when their turtle hatches and it's a male or a female, then you know what day that ha- egg was transferred into a female or a male producing temperature and you'll know whether um, like day 20 was the day that it converted from a male from a, to a female. Does that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind very, <laughs> it's logistically very confusing because they have to like do this weird swap over thing and make sure they're keeping track of all the eggs. But um, Towards the end, when you've got um, the hatchlings that have emerged, 
um, they have to euthanize them and dissect the gonads out and do histology to find out whether they are male or female. So obviously that's like pretty controversial for like most conservation projects already, like having to kill like a, a threatened species. But um, the long-term benefit of finding out whether it was male or female for like two clutches of eggs, which would be like 200 hatchlings, um, that long-term benefit would be like substantial to a research in sea turtle conservation. And it means that projects all around the world could use like a very um, globally universal um, model for mm -hmm. their population because although sea turtle species, they have different pivotal temperatures and they have different lifestyles, most of the embryology stuff is pretty like universal across all the species. Mm -hmm. Okay. So even though it's controversial, the rationale was that the end will justify the means. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So these turtles that you're working with at the moment, did you say that they, what species were they? Are so, they a number of species? Or? Yeah. So they're all different species. Um, so when I did the, when I published the paper, that was with loggerhead turtles and um, at Mondrapo. And so Mondrapo is the um, largest loggerhead rookery on the east coast of Australia and definitely anywhere past the Solomons because um, I think it's the, all of all of New Caledonia's loggerheads basically nest in Australia and vice versa. But the biggest rookery on the east coast is um, at Mondrapo near Bundaberg. And then um, for my honours, I worked with the critically endangered hawksbill turtles and northern Great Barrier Reef green turtles. And uh, the population in the northern Great Barrier Reef is the largest green turtle population in the world. <laughs> so pretty cool. Mm, that is um, cool. I, ca I can't remember like the last estimates, but it's at least like uh, 200,000 turtles um, adult turtles god knows how many juveniles there are <laughs> so lots of in lots the great of barrier reef that many uh in the northern great barrier reef and then you've got Whoa. the southern great barrier reef population as well. yeah it's a lot um the sad thing is though uh the northern great barrier reef population is declining and that's primarily due to um lots of factors um <laughs> I, I would say the biggest one would be um hunting so hunting. turtles are yeah, hunting and bycatch. Um, so if you know anything about like Papua New Guinea and basically between us and the Torres Strait, um, there's lots of illegal fishing and um, ghost nets and all of that kind of stuff and hunters as well. Mm. Um, and then in the Southern Great Barrier Reef, the population is increasing, which is really good um, considering how poorly the Northern Great Barrier Reef population is doing. And in the areas where they used to go out and do census for northern Great Barrier Reef green turtles, um, they're now finding that um, it's basically all southern Great Barrier Reef green turtles. So when turtles leave um, their nesting beach as little hatchlings, um, green turtles will kind of go past, um, kind of past near, near, near New Zealand, but they don't go all the way across the Pacific. They kind of just hang out in the Pacific, and then they come back when they're about eight years old, and they pick a feeding area for the rest of their life and they'll stay there forever <laughs> which is pretty crazy like when you think about if you have to pick commit, your first this is where i'm gonna live for the rest of my life yeah basically um it's a really big decision um and so if we're losing northern great barrier reef green turtles um and that means that the southern great barrier reef green turtles when they come back from the pacific 
they're filling those niches where the northern gravity reef were. Um, and then loggerheads are different again. They leave, well, more than likely they'll leave somewhere near Mondropo or Heron Island, and then they go past New Zealand all the way across the Pacific to Chile, mm-hmm. and then they hang out there until they're about eight years old, and then they come back across the top half of uh, or the middle section of the Pacific and then arrive back in Australia when they're about 14 to 16 years old as sub-adults. Mm-hmm. So on the sea, on the species, how many species are there? The sea turtles. Um, so I can go through them with you. Yeah, go through <laughs> them. So I've worked with the loggerheads. Um, mm-hmm. Then we've got green turtles. Mm-hmm. In Australia, there's um, thought to just be that a generic like green turtle, whereas in I think it's in Mexico, there's a black green turtle, which is now being considered as a subspecies of green turtles. Okay. So we'll class that as three. And then flatback turtles, which are endemic to Australia and they're on my shirt. What are they? So flatback turtles. So are they species or subspecies or how does that work? Yeah, that's a species. And they probably Yeah, it's a species. And they're endemic to Australia. So they only live in Australia um, or borderline PNG because it shares the Torres Strait. Um, but they only nest in Australia. They don't nest anywhere else in the world and they don't exist anywhere else in the world, which is Whereabouts pretty cool. in Australia? Um, anywhere north of Bundaberg, mm-hmm. um, they are a species quite different to all of the other ones because they don't, they really, really don't like coral, hard coral or rocky shores or anything like that. And that's because they have really, really soft skin, like, you think of like how robust a turtle looks because they have this hard shell, especially hawksbill turtles. They look quite tough and that's because they live on coral reefs and they eat sponges. Um, whereas flatback turtles, they eat sea cucumbers and sea squirts in seagrass meadows and they have really soft skin because there's no rocks there um, and they nest on soft sanded beaches. Why does that mean that they have soft skin if there's no rocks? Yeah, well, basically, and so that's kind of like their evolution has gone down that trail. Is that they don't need you don't need tough skin, so why invest in tough they don't, skin? Okay, they don't need to protect themselves from kind of bumping into a sharp rock because there's no sharp rocks. Yeah, whereas if you okay, feel right like right. a hawksbill turtle or a green turtle, they're really, really like rock hard. So we've got loggerhead, two different species of green turtles, okay, so uh, flatback turtle, hawksbill turtles, which are. I, I can't decide between hawksbill turtles or flatback turtles, which ones are my favorite <laughs> um, because they're both really pretty. I really love them. Um, hawksbill turtles are critically endangered. They're the most endangered sea turtle. Um, they're the or, one with the tortoise shell looking shell. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why they're hunted in a lot of places? Yep, yeah. Mm. So um, basically the black market for tortoise shell is – Alive and thriving, people think that it's basically gone, like, like gone under, but it's just, very well oh present. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's really shocking when you see um, they have, like, lots of photos online. You can basically Google uh, Hawks school turtle trade, and um, there's just, like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of taxidermied Hawks turtles. And basically it's it mainly happens in Papua New Guinea uh, through to, like, Malaysia where they're being harvested, and then – the buyers are not in those countries, they're in Japan. So um, basically it's uh, quite a ornamental thing to have different uh, like accessories and stuff made out of hawksbill turtle shell. 
And I think in Japanese culture, it's like a tradition to give uh, wedding presents um, that are made from tortoise shell because tortoises and turtles live for a really long time. So it's kind of like a symbol for longevity. Ironically, um, they may not be living for too much longer. Yeah, yeah. So it's not not a good um, sign for them. And WWF is actually really well, um, you know, present in the like tr- uh, space for trying to create awareness around that. And so if you ever are traveling through any part of East Asia and you see Hawksville turtle um, shell or tortoise shell for sale, that you should take a photo of it. Try and take a photo of like the market stall where it is and what village it's in because they have people that are visiting um, from WWF all the time to try and track down basically where these sources are coming from and that we can kind of isolate the areas that are most problematic. Mm-hmm. So, so if anyone are traveling, I think that was five, but just real quickly. So if anyone's traveling and they see something that's in a, a shop or a store or market, note down the details and contact WWF somehow. Yeah. And if, and if you're not quite convinced if it is real tortoiseshell, because obviously the fake version, it looks really, really similar as well. Um, WWF has photos that are really, really, really good for like trying to distinguish between the two. Basically, like fake tortoiseshell looks more like looks more regular shapes, like there's squares and triangles and stuff like that. Whereas Hawksville tortoiseshell is completely irregular and like natural patterns that you wouldn't see, be able to create from a machine. Basically, um, mm-hmm. really, really beautiful. And it's it's tragic that you know there's people that are trying to take advantage of such a um, important animal because Hawksville turtles basically they're one of those um, animals that. Um, you know, like a recycler within the reef. So they're able to eat sponges and stuff like that, which, um, you know, if we're talking about accretion and um, with coral reefs and stuff like that, they're really important. Um, and the other interesting thing about hawksbills is that they can eat sponges and corals that have um, stinging cells, but they don't get stung themselves. And rather than um, being stung, they basically don't digest the little uh, nematocyst cells and can keep them in their fat and muscle. And if you were to eat a hawksbill turtle, if you ate to eat the fat and muscle, you could die because basically the buildup of toxins um, is enough to kill a person. And there's this really sad story. I think it's in India where um, a villager came back with a hawksbill turtle and mistook it for a green, a green turtle because green turtles apparently taste much better. Um, they thought it was a green turtle. He cut it up and put it in a soup for the village mm-hmm. and everybody ate the soup for dinner and apparently 70 people were hospitalized and like 30 children had died because the toxins were that poisonous. Hectic. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's I think that's five. Did we I say? think that's five. five. And then you've got the Kemp's. Ridley and the Olive Ridley. Kemp's Ridleys are not in Australia. They're over in America. Um, and they're also critically endangered, just as bad as the Hawksville turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure why. I think that maybe the, probably the most obvious reason to me would be that bycatch because they're quite small turtles and mm-hmm. they would get caught very easily in amongst all the other fish and stuff. They wouldn't find the um, turtle exclusion device escape routes, which are basically like little trap doors that they put in fishing nets so that turtles can get out. Um, That would make the most sense to me. Um, Probably best to like research that more. 
And then the olive ridley is in Australia and that's also endangered, but not because of bycatch, more so for ghost nets and uh, also feral pigs and foxes in Australia are really, really bad in their nesting beaches. Okay. And they're quite small turtles, so they can't dig down very much. And it's really easy for wild boars, um, foxes, dogs, any of those animals to dig down and eat the eggs and at worst, I think in um, northern Australia, it was basically 100% of the clutches were being um, predated on by wild boars um, for 2016 and 17, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was that seven, That's I seven. think. Yeah. <laughs> seven. And then um, the leatherback turtle, which is probably like the one that is also quite weird and stands out from all the other ones. I'm fascinated they- with the leatherback. I want, I'd love to see one in the wild one day. So cool. Like when I was at Mont um, one of the volunteers said that they'd never seen a loggerhead before. The only turtle they'd seen is a leatherback. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, where am I? Take me there. Um, but yeah, they did like a conservation project in Costa Rica with leatherback turtles, like as their first research, like as their first experience with turtles. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but um, yeah, that's on my bucket list um, to be able to, Work with leatherback turtles would be amazing, but even just to see one wild would be even better. Um, but yeah, so basically, leatherback turtles they don't have a hard shell, they're of a di- different lineage to the rest of the sea turtles. Okay. Um, the leatherback turtles don't have like fused rib cage to basically form that hard shell that they have on the exterior, and instead, they basically their ribs are still widened, but they're not fused. And then they have these hard ridges that go like vertically down the animal instead mm-hmm. and really, really keratinized um, skin to make it give that like leather um, leather feel and look. And rather than being um, feeding in the benthos and stuff like that, leatherback turtles are completely pelagic for their entire life and they live out in the open ocean eating primarily jellyfish and sea squirts. Mm-hmm. And I saw this um, really good – um, explanational video the other day because a lot of people don't understand like why plastic bags might be such a bad problem for turtles and if you've got like a spare minute to look up um, the throat of a leatherback turtle you'll see why plastic bags are so bad for them um, so they eat jellyfish plastic bags look like jellyfish when basically when you eat a bunch of jellyfish um, they keep all the jellyfish in their throat but they've also swallowed a bunch of seawater as well So their throat has all these like backwards facing spines to stop them from regurgitating their food, but it allows water to go back out. So they'll regurgitate all the seawater and keep the jellyfish in their stomach. So obviously if they've eaten something that they don't want to eat, like a plastic bag, it's impossible for them to regurgitate it. And that's for all of the sea turtle species. They're unable to regurgitate their own food unless they have a pipe shoved down their throat and they're forced to do it and keep the throat open. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what was the number? What was the grand total in the species? It's somewhere between seven and eight, like because the black green turtle isn't an official species yet. It's still waiting to be classified. But when you see them, they definitely look different. Um, They're a lot darker. And as juveniles, they have black and orange scoots rather than just orange scoots, Mm -hmm. um, which is what green turtles have when they're juveniles. So a lot of people misidentify green turtles as hawksbill turtles because when they're juveniles, they have orange scales 
And then when they're adults, they have like a greenish gray kind of carapace. And the reason why they're orange when they're juveniles is because when they're out in the open ocean, a lot of the flotsam and like floating stuff um, is orange, like kelp and logs and, or at least it's orange brown colored. Mm-hmm. And turtles love to hang out near all the flotsam and stuff like that, where they basically have protection from bigger predators, but also like little fish and other jellyfish and stuff like that will hang out there. So it's kind of like a food source for them okay. as well. Okay. So you touched on a few of the threats. Um, can you kind of go through some of these uh, major threats for sea turtle species in general? Sure. Um, in Australia, boat strike is really, really bad. Mm-hmm. So um, particularly around areas like the Gold Coast, um, definitely in Sydney Harbour and all that kind of stuff, you have turtles living there all the time um, and they're quite – They are slow, but they can speed up if they're alerted well soon enough. So if you're driving slow enough in your boat, the turtle will come up, take a breath, see the boat, obviously, and then duck dive down really, really quickly. Whereas if you're going well over the speed limit, um, because speed limits are there for a reason, basically the turtle doesn't have time to react. And if a turtle gets hit by a boat, um, the propellers, if it hits the head, is obviously lethal. But even if the propellers hit the carapace and it cuts into the carapace, um, basically the lungs lie flat along the back of the shell. So if you cut into the carapace, you're basically puncturing the lungs as well and the turtle will die within minutes because it'll drown, won't suffocate. So boat strike is actually really, really bad in Australia. Um, Most of the animals that come into rehabilitation are from boat strikes or entanglement. So entanglement is the other one from uh, primarily ghost nets, which ghost nets come from uh, fishing vessels that have left nets behind, cut them loose. If they got tangled on rock or something down below, they'll just cut them loose. And basically the nets will just go drifting through the ocean and capture pretty much anything that comes into its way. Turtles are notoriously curious. They just come up there. I've seen a turtle that's been stuck in a um, camping chair, like at the bottom of a camping chair. Like why would a turtle want to do that? Um, and lobster pots, crab, uh, crabs and lobsters are the main diet for loggerhead turtles. So loggerheads are quite um, prone to being caught up in crab pots. Okay. And then um, they're probably like the most direct threats. An indirect threat could be light pollution. So, Turtles need dark beaches to nest on because as hatchlings, um, the hatchlings are cued into different um, environmental stimulus. Mm -hmm. One of them is the white line of the wave wash hitting the shore. And basically when they come out of the nest, they're looking for that white line because obviously that's where the ocean is. And before humans were around, nothing else was bright white around other than the moon. Um, and basically they would follow where the brightest, lowest horizon is because that's where the ocean is. Now, obviously, if you've got um, urbanisation happening behind a nesting beach in the Sunshine Coast, that's what's happening right now is you have loggerhead turtles nesting on Sunshine Coast beach, beaches and basically the little hatchlings are coming up and rather than going towards the ocean, they're going back up towards the land and then ending up crossing the streets, getting hit by cars, picked up by people, all of these other things. Um, And turtles won't even try – like a lot of the time, turtles don't even want to nest on a light 
lit up beach. So they'll just keep swimming past and end up overcrowding some other beaches or potentially just retain their eggs and not even lay anything because they don't want to nest on that beach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another indirect one. Obviously we talked about climate change is a current problem. Um, the other consequence of climate change with um, increasing sand temperatures is that you also have more frequent um, weather events like cyclones. Um, and after the 2011 floods, basically um, the green turtle population went into collapse um, two years later. And that's because um, green turtles nest. Um, they can. It takes them about two years to get ready to nest. Um, and their primary food source is seagrass. So when we had the floods, it basically washed all the seagrass out, made everything murky. The turtles had nothing to eat, and so then none of them laid. Well, some of them laid, but not all of them. Um, a very small proportion did. And if you have more intense weather events like cyclones, you're getting rid of the temporarily getting rid of that food source for them, um, and also like creating things like erosion, getting rid of the nesting beaches where they would lay. Mm-hmm. Um, so climate change is a pretty big one. Um, sea level rise, obviously, as well. They, there's, if the sea level's rising and accretion isn't happening fast enough, then they won't have anywhere to nest, basically. Um, and for loggerheads and leatherbacks, um, getting back to fishing and stuff, longline fishing is really bad as well because um, they're quite enticed by a big juicy bait on the end of a hook. And um, especially in PNG in Chile, they um, a lot of their bycatch is loggerhead turtles. Yeah, though yeah. I would say they were the main threats. The, the biggies. Obviously, plastic. <laughs> yeah, so the, 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 the pl- ring, but yeah. So the plastic is so talking about the threats, and the next progression to that is trying to figure out some solutions. So, what are some of the solutions? Perhaps more things that we can, as individuals, as the general public, can do to help these guys. Sure. So um, if we go back to fishing, um, something you can do is making sure that even the tuna can that you buy is using like whatever fishery it's coming from, know where it's coming from around the world um, and see if that fishery is actually using like turtle exclusion devices and if they've been reported previously for notorious bycatch of sea turtles and all of that kind of stuff, you can actually check that stuff online um, because we should be more like cautious of you know, where we're putting our money for voting for things that obviously aren't sustainable and um, not pro- uh, not promoting turtle conservation. Um, that would be a really good idea. Uh, plastic is one of the things, although I, I argue I, I'm obviously like a, uh, <laughs> a, what's the word? Um, I'm pro anti-plastic. Does that make sense? Like you're, you're pro-anti. I'm pro anti um, I try to use as minimal plastic as possible. Obviously, like not everyone's perfect. Um, I have my metal straws and stuff like that. But I think changing the what you eat is probably a bigger impact than, you know, trying accidentally using a plastic straw and being shunned for it. Um, if somebody is telling you that you should be using a metal straw when they're the ones that are eating a tuna sandwich that they didn't even check where the fishery came from, I would be second guessing their choices as well. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so trying trying to reduce your plastic consumption a hundred percent would help. 
um, but also educating others around you that obviously have more plastic consumption than you, going on plastic cleanups. Um, most of the plastic that is the problem in the world doesn't come from Australia. Um, when I was on Milman Island, which is where I did my honours research, easily, easily 99% of the plastic that was washing up on the beaches was, was coming from Papua New Guinea. Um, and that's just because they have a, a they don't have as good of a waste uh, management systems over there. Um, and people obviously not as well educated about plastic pollution as well. So it, you know, it gets a bit iffy surrounding that because, um, us as, you know, two individuals can't really do anything about millions of people throwing plastic bottles into the rivers in Papua New Guinea. Um, but creating conversations that hopefully spark, um, initiatives by people that actually do have power, um, to create some sort of like uh un for plastic pollution that would be amazing like something where people can uh you know how we have the paris agreement for mm -hmm. climate yeah, climate yeah mm -hmm. if we had something like that but for plastic that would be incredible like so basically that the nations could all combine together and basically hold each other accountable for using plastic mm -hmm. that would be amazing um if you live near a beach that has nesting turtles you would already know this because it's probably pumped to you at like primary schools and stuff like that. But even if you're visiting places that have nesting turtles nearby, just being, um, you know, responsible for the amount of light pollution that you do have. Or if you live in an area that does have nesting turtles and you notice that, you know, there's a big supermarket that's just opened up down the street, like maybe write to the supermarket and say, Hey, have you thought about maybe investing in some shade cloth or something like that? Because, you need to cover the amount of light glow that's coming from um, that parking lot where obviously they need the lights for security, um, but you can get around it in other ways to try and prevent it, um, the amount of glow that's coming off um, different light sources. Mm -hmm. um, what's another threat? Oh, yeah, I talked about boating, you know, slowing down when we're driving. There's other animals that are in the water as well that you should be cautious of, like whales and dugongs and all these other slow animals. Um, <clears throat> but also – if you're wanting to be um, more supportive as just individuals yourselves, um, like donating to places like WWF because they're the ones that are funding this research, right? Like they're the ones that are allowing me to go off and collect the data for us and then help create management strategies to protect turtles um, beyond your own um, responsibilities. So, um, you know, putting your money where you think is going to be most helpful and support um, sea turtle conservation would be really helpful as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of projects that we can support online on social media, so we most people are familiar with WWF, does the Turtle Cooling Project have an Instagram? Um, it doesn't have an Instagram, but they're going to be promoting it for like the next week and a half. Mm -hmm. on, um, the, on the WWF Australia page? Yeah, on the actual Instagram page. And so the report for my thesis is actually coming out, like it's being published um, for everyone to be able to see. It will be on Saturday the 7th. And there's a whole bunch of like other feature documentary kind of style um, videos that they'll be coming out with as well. But if you wanted to specifically donate to more courses like this, they do have um, – uh, like webs, web pages on their site that allow you to donate to specific turtle research projects. And we've already been talking with them about doing, um, for me, potential PhD projects, um, which basically 
will help us identify which populations are most uh, susceptible to feminization, which is that huge skew in the amount of females that are being produced. Which is predicated um, on the temperature. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what is it? So so, uh, chicks are hot, boys are cool. Dudes are cool. Yeah. Yeah, dudes are cool. Um, So, yeah, for instance, when we're talking about, you know, these questions that are basically um, the unknowns about sea turtles is for most populations, like the vast majority of populations, we have no idea what the operational sex ratio is. And the operational sex ratio is basically the ratio of males to females that is present at the breeding grounds. So um, a paper that was published last year by Jensen in 2018, um, they found in the feeding grounds that for the Northern Great Barrier Reef, the green turtles um, were 99% female in um, juveniles and sub-adults, which means that for the last, at least for the last 30 years, that Rain Island, which is the largest green turtle rookery in the world, has been substantially above um, that 29-degree limit where males can be produced and that for the last 30 years, Rain Island's been producing females. So if you want to go back to an operational sex ratio, uh, males can breed nearly every single year, whereas females, they need two to five-year breaks between breeding. So you don't necessarily have to have like 50% males and 50% females in the whole population. You just need a better balanced ratio at the breeding grounds. So if males are able to reproduce every single year, that means that um, the population can be supported and viable for future generations. So basically, we don't know what that what that ratio currently is for the Northern Great Barrier Reef. And there's been estimates for the Southern Great Barrier Reef in the 1980s. Um, But obviously that needs like updating. So hopefully I'll get to be able to do both of those um, projects. And instead of doing turtle rodeo, which is basically you jump on a boat, you have like helmet and wetsuit on. I can send you photos of me wearing the get up. (laughs) Um, And basically you go out to wherever they're feeding or breeding and jump on turtles, capture them, tag them, measure them, and figure out whether they're a male or a female. That's really, really labor-intensive, and it requires like lots and lots of um, survey trips for you to go out and actually capture enough turtles to make it a viable like research project. Obviously, long-term projects have been going on for ages, and they have lots of data, which is fantastic. Um, but if you wanted to do like a short like two- to three-year project where you're just trying to find what the breeding ratios are in the – courting areas um you could actually get boats that have drones on them and fly drones over where the areas where they're breeding and count how many males to females there are just by doing that and that would be a hell of a lot easier than jumping off a boat 50 million seems, times in same, day. seems a wee bit easier that option yeah yeah it's fun i'm i admit like their total rodeos are fun um, I'm not the best at it though, which is not the greatest thing. Uh, I was wearing like a six mil wetsuit when I did it. So basically when I like dived in, I just floated back to the top and the turtle just kept swimming. So I was like, well, I probably should have worn a better wetsuit to be honest. Um, but we were doing it in winter, so I didn't want to freeze. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So you just floated at the top. <laughs> I have a couple more questions cause we're yeah. nearing, nearing the hour. Um, a couple kind of personal ones. I've always yeah. been intrigued with this idea that 
the sea turtles always return back to the beach that they were hatched from. Yeah. Why does that happen, A, and B, how the heck do they figure that out? So they won't always return to the same beach. Um, Some beaches are notorious for it, so, like, whatever environmental cue is on that beach, it's very, very strong. Um, but the way that sea turtles basically um, home themselves back to a natal region, which is where they would nest, um, when they first hatch as little baby hatchlings and they come out of the nest, um, there's a specific part of their brain that has um, imprinting abilities and basically they use these tiny little – the current research is something to do with little iron particles or metals that are in floating around in their cerebral fluid in their brain. And whatever direction those particles are facing tells you like their magnetic field direction and it'll imprint to that. (laughs) So first it'll imprint to that. And that completely unknown how long that process needs to be taken for. It could be, it could be an hour. It could be 10 minutes. We have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, The other environmental cues that they um, imprint on is the smell of the sand, the sound of the waves, the light, the stars, like pretty much everything that they'll see when they first come out of the nest hole because they've been in complete darkness since they yeah. hatch. Um, that's another thing. And there's, there's a difference between hatching and emerging. So when an egg first hatches with the embryo, the turtle will actually sit there for 24 to 48 hours absorbing the egg yolk inside itself and straightening up because they've been sitting in a little ball. So they'll straighten up. Stretching. And then they wait for the rest of the clutch to hatch and then they'll all dig to the surface together. And that's really important that they all dig to the surface together because it kind of works like a conveyor belt that one hatchling above pulls the sand downwards and the next one pulls that sand downwards and they all move up together. So once they've hatched and they're imprinted to all of those features, um, they obviously like crawl down into the water, swim away. They've gone for like 30 years if you're a green turtle. And then when they reach sexual maturity, um, they'll have a influx of hormones just like you do when you have puberty as well. Um, and they'll use that same homing um, imprint ability to find a courtship area. No, there's a lot of un- unknown research about that as well how a specific population knows to find specific courtship areas when they've never, ever been them to before is completely <laughs> unknown. Um, there's some people think that um, male turtles have the ability to create a very, very low frequency sound from the courtship areas because they always seem to arrive two weeks earlier than the females do. And so the aggregation of males would basically um, hurt in all the females then they breed with the females for a month or so before um, the nesting season actually starts. And then once the females have mated with um, several males, they'll mate with um, anywhere from two to like seven males mm-hmm. um, during the time that they're there. Um, they store all the fer- the sperm in the folds of the oviduct. And then as the eggs come down the oviduct, they'll sequentially like fertilize those eggs. And she can actually choose completely unknown how she does it, whether she wants that sperm to fertilize that specific clutch or whether she wants to reject a certain male sperm or whatever it is, which is completely, that's totally interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so 
she's using that homing beacon basically to get herself back to the same region where she had nested um, and then obviously come up to the beach. The first time a sea turtle nests, which is – that's an incredible experience in itself. Like it's incredible to see a turtle that's nested multiple times because she knows exactly what she's doing and she knows that she needs to head towards a tree and she knows exactly how to dig a hole and all that kind of stuff. The first time a turtle ever nests, she's really skittish. She's quite nervous. She's never been out of the ocean before, generally has never been out of the ocean before since she was a tiny little hatchling, which mm. could have been like 30 years ago. So all of this is like new. Um, she's climbing up the beach really quite skittish, and a lot of the time they don't even end up nesting anywhere near the dunes. They'll nest halfway up the beach because they're so scared to be out of the water. Ah. Yeah, so that's why like conservation projects – will relocate those eggs um, further up the beach because there's nothing wrong with her as an individual. Like she's not genetically defaulted or anything mm. like that. Um, it's just her first time nesting and she just is too fair, scared to come off the way to the enough. beach. And when, yeah, yeah. with these programs, um, my girlfriend and I were in Tiaman Island probably about three years ago now. And the very first night that we stayed on that beach, um, a turtle came up and uh, nested there cool which is freaking amazing um so they had like a, a turtle conservation project on that beach and they came through the lead person in that uh, project and collected the eggs um so they do it pretty soon after they actually um lay the eggs right and they're in yeah. some kind of trance light state it seems like oh, yeah what does that they, mean they and that's more of a tourist um, terminology. <laughs> so, like, the tour guides at Monterey say trance like state all the time. But what's really happening is um, basically when we're in the um, vicinity of a turtle and she's coming up the beach, if she sees us, we're a completely unknown animal and she'll just assume that we're a predator. And a lot of the time if you spook, spook them or just scare them off, she'll just go straight back into the water and then come back like 20 minutes later when you're gone. So once she's gotten halfway up the beach and she's realised, okay, it's like safe to go and you're staying really still in the dark because they'll detect movement more than like you being able to move. Um, so, yeah, once she's gotten up into the dunes and started digging, you know, she's kind of gotten really into it now. Like she's busying herself a lot um, starting to dig. Then when she's dug the actual hole and started laying, now she's really invested into the process, right? Like she's already started laying eggs and for her to actually stop laying eggs, fill in the hole, go back down to the ocean, that's a lot of effort. And so if she knows that, well, you haven't hurt me so far and like I'm not really worried about you anymore, it's not really a trance. It's more of acceptance by the animal. So she's no longer – feeling threatened by you and you know where surely to- she's aware that they're removing the eggs no she has no oh, idea okay. yeah so it's, it's really cute like turtles their brain is like this big really? <laughs> so if you took an egg out and sat it next to her she had no idea what that is like i don't know what like she she doesn't understand it's- that that is her egg that blows um, my mind because small brain, yet they can figure out how to come back to like a beach from the other side. You know? it, it, it's basically programmed into her. The whole, like, and to, for her to know, she's never ever nested before. 
and for her to know that she has to go, she knows that she has to get up to the dunes. She knows that. And she also knows that she has to clear away, like using her flippers and doing a 360-degree, like, rotation to clear all away all the vegetation and make a body pit and then actually dig a hole deep enough that all the eggs will fit into it and then lay the eggs, then fill them in, then cover up everything so that no predators can find the eggs and then go back down to the beach. Like, she's never done that before, yet she knows exactly what to do, never been shown at all. They're incredible animals and, like, that just amazes me so much that yeah you can sit the egg right next to her and show her and she has no idea what it is and she doesn't care either she's just stuck in this hormonal like um program that basically tells her what to do and the other really interesting thing is like if you find a turtle that maybe is missing a back flipper and she's not able to dig properly her feet will still continue doing it even though she – and we've seen turtles that have two stumps for feet and not flippers because basically what they do is they dig their foot down, like create a little curve with their back flipper and then pull the sand out and then set it to the side, whereas when you've just got stumps, you're basically just like stomping on the sand. You're not really digging a hole. And if a researcher finds her, we'll just dig the hole for her and then she'll still lay the eggs and she's perfectly fine. And it's more likely that she got stumps for legs, not because of a um, not because of a genetic disformity or something like that. It's probably she lost some from a shark bite or something like that. So it's really interesting. Like she, she'll have to be probably digging um, like with her little stumps for probably an hour before she realizes that she can't do it. And then she fails multiple nights in a row because if you can't dig um you'll just keep coming back and trying um basically after a week of trying she'll just dump the eggs out in the ocean and um continue to make another clutch and a clutch is what you call a group of yeah clutch is a clutch of eggs yeah clutch of eggs. okay um yeah. people are traveling more and more around the world and Around Southeast Asia, where we traveled, there was quite a few sea turtle um, sanctuaries. Yeah. What advice do you have? Like, to me, some seem more legit than others, but like, as someone that d- didn't really know or doesn't really know kind of this space too well, it's hard for me to distinguish um, what, what should we look out for to kind of be like, okay, this place is legit, or maybe this place is just trying to take my money? Yeah. So um, I've seen photos recently um, from a sea turtle sanctuary in Bali and the key, like the number one thing that if you you know you're in the wrong place and this is a bad, bad, like this is not a sanctuary, this is a turtle torture centre, is if you've got 20 turtles all in one tank. Like that should not be happening. There was multiple, like babies. not babies, like okay. I'm talking about like, you know, uh, there's like some sanctuaries that have like um, larger turtles that yeah. they're rehabilitating turtles and they're basically, maybe they did, maybe they were rehabilitating them at the start, but then they just decided, oh no, we're just going to keep them because their turtles bring us money. So um, if you've got like heaps, if it's an overcrowded pool of turtles, 100%, that's not like a legitimate sanctuary. Um, if you've found somewhere that has little hatchlings in little pools, um, that could well be an actual sanctuary because um, I know definitely in the conflict islands in Papua New Guinea, they um, are able to take tourists and see little tiny hatchlings just like a day or two after they've emerged. And that's because they'll just hold on to them um, 
and sometimes they keep them I think for three months as well because there's this idea of um, kickstart which is when you give the majority of hatchlings um, a kickstart in life um, protecting them as very very small babies and growing them out until they're at least big enough that a trevally can't eat them or something like that um, and that then you release them and more of them will survive after that. There's very little research, um, obviously, to um, back that up because you can't follow an entire clutch of hatchlings for their entire life. Um, but I guess, like, the biggest thing is if, if you're not seeing um, a lot of, like, research uh, facilities, like, uh, like tagging equipment and all that kind of stuff, and um, if they're, especially if they're not um, being certified as an NGO or anything, like that's 100%. I would not be putting my money in that. And if you do see these places and you're worried about the um, ethics, um, you can contact people like WWF. Um, I guess if you're in a country that maybe has better um, a better government, um, Bali is a bit tricky because they don't barely have any um, uh, barely any protection of, of any of the animals. Um, same with Papua New Guinea. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tricky space, and you know the other thing you got to remember is that this is probably the livelihoods of these people as well. Mm. So they've probably been doing it for the last like twenty or thirty years, and um, they rely on it as a source of income. So it's a very precarious um, situation. But for me, at least, you know, I think the ethics of an animal being kept in such a small confined probably no sunlight area as well and they're probably just being fed either like bait like like really really cheap bait like uh, squid or prawns or anything like that which they do naturally eat but if it's just poor quality and it's probably riddled with disease and it hasn't been quarantined either or i've even seen places in vanuatu that are feeding them iceberg lettuce like t- turtles don't eat iceberg lettuce <laughs> and especially the out the size of the turtle that I was looking at being fed was not, it was definitely not an adult and should not be eating vegetable, mm. like uh, vegetation and stuff like that when it's only a small turtle, okay. but basically they've been conditioned to eat that. And what about it tourists um, handling the baby sea turtles and then releasing them back into the ocean? Yeah. Okay, so this is this is a really obviously it's very topical because in Australia the laws are very strict. Um, you can't touch a sea turtle without a permit to do so, or um, uh, if it's for research as well, you need a, like ethics approval. Um, for us as researchers that get uh, like allowed to do it, um, I see uh, you know no issue with holding onto the turtles for measuring and all that kind of stuff if it's prolonged use of turtle like hatchlings and holding them for photos obviously that's not okay because you're um if you're holding on to them to too long you're, they're losing their little energy reserves that they've got stored up so i i've known places that basically hold on to hatchlings for days because they want to be able to maximize the amount of tourists that can get photos with them obviously that's not very good for the hatchling because within that first 48 hours is the most important time for it to be able to get away and if you're a loggerhead turtle or a green turtle they're basically trying to swim as far out away from the um, mainland to try and get off the continental shelf and get into, you know, the East Australian current. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's a topical issue and it depends what country you're in, um, whether or not you're allowed to hold hatchlings. For small amounts of time for like one or two photos is not going to hurt them or anything like that. And they're used to being picked up. Well, they're not used to being picked up. They're, um, 
you know, birds pick, I've seen seagulls pick up turtle hatchlings and like being flying above 20 meters above the air and then drop them and the hatchling will just continue on as if nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're very hardy little creatures. They're very like strong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only thing that I wonder about with holding a baby sea turtle for a photo is, um, you know, that photo opportunity becoming viral and then you're just yeah. dealing with more people and there's more moving parts and, you know, our intention may be good, but the person beside me may not. And that's when it can potentially get out of hand. So, yeah, it's, it's all to do with, um, context as well. So a lot of the time, if you're, you might upload a photo of you holding a hashling and if you have a context that says like, you know, I'm, I've been, I have a permit to do this or I've fallen under a permit that allows me to do this. Um, and it's all within conservation for me. Like I, I, I feel okay with that. Mm. But the problem is when someone takes that photo and does it something else with it and like mm. promotes, I don't know, something else yeah. to do with and totally you lose that context. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the work, the internet is like a pretty deep space. And if you lose your photos, then obviously, yeah, it's a bit tricky. Okay. Well, as always, this um, podcast has gone longer than <laughs> schedule. <laughs> Literally every yeah. podcast. <laughs> forever honestly like there's so many there's so many things yeah that we could talk about but yeah. turtles are pretty cool i'm pretty turtles, happy with turtles are cool and yeah i yeah. could literally go on for for ages but well maybe there could be a part two later down the track perhaps yeah definitely that'd be cool maybe mm. once i started my phd and i've got more <laughs> i've got more um stories to tell you <laughs> mm -hmm. okay well let's let's pencil in a part two for the future um, but for this one, is there anything else you wanted to quickly discuss before we finish off? I'm pretty sure we've finish covered nice. Um, yeah. So if you're in Australia and you really want to get involved with sea turtle conservation or with research, Monopo Turtle Research Centre is like the number one place to get your experience because you have been taught by basically the um, – He's, he's the chief biologist for the Department of, um, of Environment and Science, and he's been doing this for the last 50 years. So he's very – and Monopo Turtle Centre is the longest ongoing turtle research centre in the world as well. So you're really getting the best of the best um, education, and he, he provides lectures. You get one-on-one uh, -on -one experience with real turtles, hatchlings, um, relocations, uh, you even get the odd like sea snakes show up <laughs> occasionally, um, not for nesting, but like uh, for release and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then also the center is really, um, really, really involved in tourism. And for the Bundaberg region, I believe Wanderpo produces, it's something like 80% of the amount of tourists that end up going to Bundaberg just go there to see the turtles. Um, and the best part about it, that is that because the tourists are so well knitted into the research conservation, they're also getting the best experience from researchers as well. And they're getting, you know, firsthand knowledge about sea turtle conservation and being able to protect these species, especially the loggerheads, because um, if it hadn't been for that tourist centre opening up and um, Cole um, having that research centre, loggerheads on east coast of australia probably would have gone extinct by the early 2000s um the trawling industry was basically allowed to trawl all through the nesting season and were killing nesting females 
in like, you know, 20 nesting females in a night because they're allowed to trawl right in front of the beach where these turtles were coming up to nest. Um, and basically he like, um, enforced, um, within the department that these, um, turtle exclusion devices be used and that there basically be no trawling during the nesting season. So, um, I think if you really want to get involved in turtles, that's the best place to start. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.